Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash GYQ. Supported by an unrestricted educational grant from AstraZeneca. Hello, I am Shelley Zeroff from the University of Manitoba Cardiac Sciences Program in Winnipeg, Canada. And welcome to this activity on managing hyperkalemia. I'm joined in this discussion by my colleague, Kieran McCafferty, from Queen Mary University and Farts Health NHS Trust in London, UK. Welcome, Kieran. Hi, everybody. So we are going to be uh, doing three modules. We're going to start with module one, overcoming hyperkalemia as a barrier to better care in chronic kidney disease and heart failure. Kieran, we know that optimal RASI therapy is associated with decreased mortality and MACE in both chronic kidney disease and heart failure, um, and that that uh, you know, reduction in mortality and MACE is even more amplified as we get to target doses of RASI therapy in both of our chronic conditions. And in fact, RASI therapy is recommended by international guidelines as well. We have our European and Canadian and American HEFREF guidelines that recommend achieving the highest target doses possible of ACE, ARB, ARNI in our case as well, um, and um, MRAs in order to reduce clinical events. And so what about the nephrologists? What do those guidelines say? So very similar. Um, so our Kate Daigo um, recommends ACE or ARB at the highest approved dose for people with diabetes, hypertension, and albuminuria, and those people with hypertension, CKD, uh, and, and and albuminuria. I would say that, unfortunately, the nephrologists are always hanging behind the cardiologists as our evidence base is only 1B or 2C, so not as quite as good as the 1A evidence from uh, my cardiology colleagues. So, Kieran, how common is it for you to initiate RASI therapy in a patient with chronic kidney disease, only to have to discontinue um, if the patient's potassium levels start to trend up? So, it's incredibly common. So, we know that our patients have a very high burden of hyperkalemia, and that the therapies that we know work for our patients for the last two decades leads to hyperkalemia. So. Um, when starting anyone on uh, an ACE or an ARB, we always tend to check the potassium level one to two weeks uh, later or ask our primary care colleagues when starting um, or up titrating these agents to, to check the potassium uh, levels one to two weeks later. And, and it's incredibly common and we're often faced with that dilemma about having to consider re reducing the therapies we know are the cornerstone of, of management of our patients and, and, and more fundamentally with patients with progressive CKD they tend to develop um, hyperkalemia as part of their disease process. So even when people are on stable doses of RASI, we're continually checking their potassium levels to make sure that they're not developing hyperkalemia as a consequence of their progressive renal um, uh, disease. But I guess I'm interested from you is we often have discussions between cardiologists and nephrologists about our thresholds um, for hyperkalemia. I wonder what your thoughts were on, on perhaps uh, nephrologists being too blasé about, about hyperkalemia. Uh, perhaps you are too blasé, um, or my threshold is too low. I, I, I so the, the majority of cardiologists, I think, their threshold for action is a potassium level of about five point four. 
Um, we also um, look at our electrolytes, you know, within one to two weeks of any up titration. Uh, and for patients on MRA, we extend that even longer and then do sort of routine intermittent monitoring. Uh, again, looking for that sporadic hyperkalemia. Um, but I'd say 5.4, but what is your threshold? So, so I think nephrologist, there was always a kind of brav, you know bravado about um, tolerating much higher levels of hyperkalemia that they don't don't get don't get panic the less more than 6.5 or you know or higher. But I think we're wrong. I think that the epidemiological data suggests that that, that there's a signal for um, poor outcomes with even moderate mild to moderate hyperkalemia. I think that so I think that we should be um, you know behaving like our cardiology colleagues with sort of 5.4 5.5. I think the only thing to say with nephrologists is we've got easy access to dialysis that we can wheel our patients around from clinic and, and pop them on a dialysis machine. So I, I can understand perhaps why our cardiology colleagues are a bit more twitched by hyperkalemia than, than nephrologists. But but overall, I think you're right. Earlier intervention is probably better. I love it. I love that you're agreeing with the cardiologist. So let's tackle a couple of cases really quickly because we're going to carry on with these cases um, in the upcoming modules as well. Um, so we have Lisa, who's age 67, with chronic kidney disease, declining EGFR from 56 to 49, and some albuminuria present as well. And she has the common comorbidities in this patient population of type 2 diabetes and mild hypertension. And she's currently on losartan, amlodipine, atorvastatin, and metformin. And I don't think she's on target dose of losartan, only 50 milligrams, which my, I believe is an important drug for somebody with progenuric CKD. So how, what, what would be your next steps? So firstly, what I say is, you know, Lisa represents probably one of the most common patients that we see in our clinics. You know, they've got progressive proteinuric CKD due to diabetes, which we know is probably the most common cause of chronic kidney disease. And as you say, yes, so that they're on suitable, you know, agents, they're on a statin, they're on metformin, they're on blood pressure tablets. But I, I would note that they're uh, on a suboptimal dose of Luxartan. And we know, again, that we should be trying to get our patients on the maximum dose um, of Luxartan. So for here, depending on what her potassium was, the first thing I'd be doing is certainly increasing her uh, Luxartan and then um, wanting to get her on an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, with proven cardiovascular benefits. And, and then I, I guess coming back to you in terms of uh, the cardiology one. So I was wondering if you could comment on, on Raymond, who's 58. Um, he's got stage C heart failure, symptomatic heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction of 30%. Uh, he's dyslipidemic. He is centrally obese. His um, GFR is um, 60. He's on atorvastatin, lisinopril, and carbetalol. And I'm just wondering what would be your, what would be your next steps? Um, there's so much to do here for Raymond, right? He's uh, a diagnosis of HEF-REF, and we now have our four foundational therapies. He's currently on two of them, um, although one could say as well that um, we could switch his lisinopril to secubitril-valsartan, um, which is associated with lower potassium levels than uh, RASI therapy. Um, we would need to add an SGLT2 inhibitor, and we need to add an MRA. Um, and so, you know, the, the mantra is, you know, four drugs in four weeks or start low doses, up titrate as much as tolerated. Um, and certainly hyperkalemia can be an issue as we make these changes in therapy. So lots to do for Raymond. The Delphi consensus statement, which I was very fortunate to be part of, was an international steering committee of cardiologists and nephrologists 
and we developed 39 statements regarding hyperkalemia, including risk factors, risk stratification, correction of hyperkalemia, and importantly, and part of the reason Kieran and I are doing this together, cross-specialty coordination. And consensus was determined by an online questionnaire to these cardiorenal specialists. And it was actually surprising the amount of consensus between nephrologists and cardiologists. In fact, um, a large number of these recommendations achieved over 90% consensus, Kieran, and, uh, and a, a smaller number achieved a high agreement of 67 to 90% um, consensus. So really impressive there. And now we're going to just tackle two of these six statements that we ended up coming up with in the Delphi consensus. So Kieran, what are your thoughts on those Delphi consensus recommendations? So I agree what I would say, the, the, the high level messages, it's, it's surprising how well cardiologists and nephrologists agree with each other. I think it's really important that, that the vast, vast majority um, of nephrologists and cardiologists agree with that statement that it's a predictable, uh, you know, treatable, manageable um, uh, side effect uh, of, of, of heart failure and CKD management. I think looking at the second statement, about importance of taking a history to try and uh, inform us of preventative measures. I think, again, nephrologists and cardiologists generally agree with each other, but I would suggest that that statement is perhaps uh, less people very strongly agree, but there's still an overall significant agreement with that statement. As part of this activity, Peer Voice conducted a survey of nephrologists and cardiologists. It was an international survey, and they were asked to rate their agreement with key statements from the Delphi consensus statements. And in our survey that we conducted as well, we see that there are a lot of the uh, individuals who responded somewhat agreed or either strongly agreed um, with those two statements as well. So optimally treated therapy can reduce the risk of death and MACE in both heart failure, CKD, and type two diabetes. However, there's often a therapeutic dilemma in terms of getting patients to those target doses. I think you'd agree with that, Kieran, right? Yeah. So I think you know, I think that's the 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 that we always are that tension between getting one of the right dose while minimizing the risk of hyperkalemia. I totally agree. So in the next modules, we'll explore how we can enable the management of hyperkalemia so that um, it's not a concern to patients, and then we'll be able to achieve our target doses of our guideline-directed medical therapy. Thanks for joining us and join us for the next modules. Thank you. Welcome to module two achieving optimal treatment of CKD and heart failure through effective management of hyperkalemia. I'm Shelley Zeroth from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. And so this is the second module on this activity on managing hyperkalemia with uh, Kieran McCafferty from Queen Mary University and Bart's Health NHS Trust in London, UK. Um, and we've already covered module one, overcoming hyperkalemia as a barrier to better care in CKD and heart failure. And we introduced some cases to you. So why don't we see how our patients are doing now? And so Kieran, we're gonna follow up now on Lisa, who is age 67 with albuminuric CKD. 
And I see that she's still on Losartan 50 milligrams, which isn't exactly target dose RASI therapy, um, but you've added an SGLT2 inhibitor, dapagliflozin. But now on follow-up lab work, we're seeing that trend up in her potassium from 5.3 to 5.5, and now it's 5.7. So what are you going to do? You know, in an ideal world, I'm still wanting to get uh, Lisa on the maximum dose of Sartan. Um, but I'm aware that even despite being on a subvacular dose of Losartan, her um, potassium is increasing up to the level of 5.7 as a nephrologist. That's a level where I really, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to be increasing her Losartan anymore. I'd be reluctantly thinking about reducing her Losartan or thinking about other therapies uh, that we can, that we can um, uh, you know, involve. I'd also be maybe thinking about talking to her about her diet, and I guess we can... Um, come on to you know uh, what are what are our I would like to ask our phone a friend and ask our survey colleagues what they think that we should do. Okay, well here are the responses from the survey. Your phone a friend, um, and we have uh, cardiologists and nephrologists. And the the cardiologists in response to this case, um, the majority of them would have reduced the doses of the RASI therapy, uh, and then the nephrologists were less likely to do that and potentially add in a novel potassium binder. So I think that's probably, you know, what I would be in an ideal world, what I would be uh, recommending, particularly as I'd want to be increasing her, her low sartan anyway. And so I think that I, I'm glad that I probably agree with my nephrology, uh, my nephrology colleagues. But, but what I would say is looking at that, there seems to be quite a wide spectrum of, there's not one overwhelming um, uh, decision from our, from our, our survey. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting, um, you know, the uptake in these newer potassium binders in comparison to SPF. I guess now uh, over to you. So this is uh, Raymond. And actually his potassium even higher than Lisa's. His potassium is 6, which has increased from 4.5 uh, maybe about, a, you know, four weeks ago after he started um, spironolactone. I see that you've also um, added on an, an SGLT2 inhibitor uh, at his blood pressure is you know i guess uh, you know at target um so what would you be doing now in this case for raymond yeah so for a hefref patient with that blood pressure there's actually even more room to uptitrate these therapies including the rasi therapy and i've started an mra so um, it could be that that mra is causing my um, high potassium as well uh, six is kind of a big jump. And so I think one of the first things I would do is probably repeat it um, as quickly as possible. And if it persisted, then I would send to the emergency room. But I think um, I'm interested in what our survey respondents said about this, um, you know, what they would do for next steps as well. So so here's looking at our survey response. And I think the, the first thing that I would say is overall, um, the most popular response from uh from the the overall it is is discontinue the RASI uh, until the hyperkalemia results. But I but again across the survey there's a bit of a widespread. So um uh, there's a sort of a, a quarter look to want to repeat the potassium, which is what you said, as well as adding in a, a novel potassium uh, a potassium binder. I think perhaps more cardiologists were feeling that they wanted to discontinue the RASI therapy uh, compared to nephrology, but. Uh, Apart from that, there's a kind of nephrologists and cardiologists seem to uh, agree on what the options are, albeit that 
they, they disagree on what they should be. Yeah, I think just continuing the RASI therapy, a lot of us probably would do that, but then reintroduce it and potentially with an enabling therapy like the novel potassium binders, um, which make it a more a, a safer environment. And certainly we have um, some data to support that practice and even some consensus recommendations and guideline recommendations um, to consider that approach as well. So let's reflect back on the Delphi consensus recommendations. We began discussing this in module one. And so there are two more of the six statements here uh, that we came up with that had high consensus amongst nephrologists and cardiologists. So the first one is RASI use should not be de-escalated or discontinued due to hyperkalemia unless alternative measures of hyperkalemia management have been optimized. And the following statement is novel potassium binders should be the preferred agent to manage hyperkalemia and should be used to enable and maintain optimized RASI therapy. So shall we go to our, see what our survey respondents thought about the Delphi consensus statements? I think what I would say is that generally the, the agreement between the cardiologists and nephrologists is very similar. I think that if you consider somewhat agree or strongly agree, the vast majority of, uh, of both um, groups certainly um, agree with uh, the uh, label, uh, the first, the first uh, question. I, I would, I would look at the second point about novel potassium binders should be the preferred agent. Uh, that that the most common um, response from the cardiologist was either neutral or somewhat agree. So there appears to be a slight disparity, whereas the nephrologists uh, would more strongly agree with that statement than than the cardiologist. It may just be. A, a greater familiarity with potassium binders, perhaps from from nephrologists over cardiologists. So we know that for people who've who have stopped their RASI therapy, you know, there's a mean duration of discontinuation with 1.9 years for people with heart failure and 2.4 years for people with chronic kidney disease. And actually, what I would argue is that stopping the RASI therapy for people with chronic kidney disease, we know those people will progress more rapidly for end stage renal failure, and we know that. Renal, you know, rapid renal progression towards end stage renal failure is one of the most important um, things to develop hyperkalemia. So I think it's a it's a double whammy here. So that you're, you know, you're denying them evidence based therapy and you're making hyperkalemia perhaps more likely because they're going to progress um, more rapidly. I think you know having 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 stopped people's RASI therapy because of hyperkalemia, it's incredibly difficult to convince patients to take them again. You know, patients say to me, "I'm allergic to Ramipril." because someone had told them that the Ramipril was stopped because of their hyperkalemia, and it's very difficult to get them back on these medicines, which we knew in our heart of hearts is, is what they need. So it's a, it's a big challenge. And I think, you know, I agree with um, the guidelines that say, that, you know, the last thing we should be, the, the last thing we do is stop the, the RASI therapy. We try to do every other thing first before accepting defeat and, and stopping the RASI therapy. You know, there's, um, an interesting consensus statement uh, that was uh, published in a European Heart Journal. It was a consensus statement led by Professor Rosano um, that gave cardiologists a really practical, pragmatic approach um, to uh, enabling guideline-directed medical therapy with the use of novel potassium binders based on the serum potassium levels and whether or not the patients achieved target levels of RASI therapy. And, and and so I think, you know, it's important for us to not remove disease modifying therapy, but 
enable their use and maximal dose achievements. Um, what did you think about those guidelines or those, con it's not a guideline, it's consensus recommendations. So I think, you know, you've got to have a target somewhere. And, and I guess my only, my only thought of that is that, you know, if I saw someone with a potassium of 5.1 who was on submaximal therapy, would I start a potassium binder first? Or when I try and get them up to maximal therapy, accepting a potassium level of 5.2, 5.3 before, you know, getting a lot of potassium minor. But I totally understand that, you know, it's a wide, it's a wide um, uh, target range and we've got to, you know, choose a point somewhere. Um, but, but yeah, it's for me, it's, it's a, you know, and I hate that. I, I would not want to in any way come across any uh, or anger any cardiologist, but I, I would maybe have, you know, potassium at 5.4, 5.5 if you are not on optimized dose before going in with a, a potassium binder as, as first line. Why don't we go back to our survey respondents and look at their threshold for reducing the dose of RASI therapy or discontinuing RASI therapy. What are your thoughts on this one? So, so looking at that, what I would first of all say is that, you know, the cardiologists and nephrologists are, are very much in sync with what their decisions are. And so looking at the first, uh, the first uh, question is, um, what potassium level would you uh, use as a threshold for reducing the dose of RASI therapy? And the, the vast majority have said between five and six. And I'm sure if it was 5.1, you'd have very few. And I'm sure if it was 5.9, you would have, you know, almost everybody um, stopping or, or reducing the RASI therapy. Um, and, and then looking at the, I guess, the second question is, what would you uh, use as the threshold for discontinuing? So stopping the RASI therapy. So I guess the vast majority wait until um, more than, uh, more than six and, and and you know i guess that's probably in line with the 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 guidance as long as you tried all the other um methods so you know we have three agents that um we can use for reduction of potassium sps batyramir um sodium zirconium cyclosilicate so do you want to tell us about you know important differences between these and how to use them in real life so so i guess what i, I would say is that you know these three agents are very much not equal. What I would say is that, you know, both these agents are a huge step forward in our ability to manage um, uh, hyperkalemia. As you can see from the table, um, Paterimer is a, is a polymer exchange resin, whereas um, sodium zirconium cyclosilicate is a crystalline compound that exchanges sodium for hydrogen. They both um, act to reduce uh, potassium levels much more rapidly than, than SPS. So within 24 hours for um, SCC or within a week for Paterma, although there are data that suggest that there is a significant fall in potassium levels in, in the kind of hours. Um, uh, so yeah, within seven hours of first dose, within one hour uh, of the first dose. And that's the kind of area where, you know, we can start to using these agents to, you know, fairly rapidly normalize um, or at least um, start reducing people's um, potassium levels. Um, in terms of drug-drug interactions, so uh, with Paterimer, um, we want to avoid taking Paterimer within three hours of other oral drugs. With um, SCC, it's uh, within two hours, uh, apart from drugs that um, are affected by gastric and um, pH bioavailability. In terms of their location, um, Paterimer is predominantly distal colon. Um, SCC is the entire um, GI tract. And, and this is, I think, is where the novel potassium binders are particularly differentiating from from SPS, it's just that patients get on with them so much better. They they, they don't tend to have any um, symptomatic side effects. I mean, the reported ones with Therma are hypomagnesemia, 
and some um, GI side effects, mild to moderate constipation. Again, with SCC, there's mild to moderate GI side effects and some uh, edema in, in the higher doses. But, you know, overall, both these agents are so much better tolerated than our older potassium uh, binders. I agree with you on your statement. So um, why don't you close this session for us and we'll move on to module three. Great. So, so you know, I think in this in this module we've talked on, you know, that we know that rastotherapy is a cornerstone of management for our patients with CKD and diabetes, and that, that we can use oral potassium binders as guidelines, as our guidelines tell us, to help enable uh, dose maintenance or dose escalation of our patients who can benefit from these uh, therapies. And there are lots of trials underway to evaluate uh, our novel potassium binders as an adjunct to enable uh, RASI maintenance of titration. We know, uh, including a diamond study for uh, for Paterma, which we see published, and there's Realized K and Stabilized CKD for SCC. So we very much look forward to seeing you in the next module. Welcome to module three on a discussion about hyperkalemia. In module one, we introduced hyperkalemia as a barrier to better care for patients with chronic kidney disease and heart failure. In module two, we looked at effective management of hyperkalemia. And now in module three, we're gonna look at practical strategies for long-term management of hyperkalemia. I'm Shelley Zeroth from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, and this will be our final module on managing hyperkalemia. And I am joined with my colleague, Kieran McCafferty from Queen Mary University and Bart's Health NHS Trust in London, UK. Welcome, Kieran. Hi, everybody. So let's see what happens to our cases that we introduced in the previous modules after the hyperkalemia resolves. So let's look at Lisa. Uh, again, Kieran, you're managing her hyperkalemia and getting her now to target doses um, of RASI therapy. She's on Losartan, 100 milligrams, and remains on the other medications, including the SGLT2 inhibitor that you started. And she's on sodium zirconium cyclosilicate uh, with a latest potassium value from 4.5, remembering that her peak level was 5.7. So what would you do now, Kieran, in the long-term management of this patient who has a tendency for hyperkalemia? You know, to me, she's an optimized therapy. We've got her on the max dose of Sartan. We've got her on Dapagliflozin. Her potassium is uh, in the normal range. So I'm, I'm really happy with how things are. The question now is, what, what do we do? So, you know, I guess the question is, do we stop the, uh, the, the potassium binder? I mean, I would think of it as, Someone's hypertensive, you start on an ACE inhibitor, and they're now not hypertensive. Does that mean you stop the ACE inhibitor? No, you still continue it because it's doing the, the, the job. And, you know, arguably people with chronic kidney disease, you know, develop hyperkalemia even without RASI therapy. So I would argue if she's tolerating it well, and she's on a max dose sartan and a potassium is well controlled, I would not rock the boat. And I'd be tempted to continue um, the, the therapy uh, as, you know, as long as, you know, they tolerate the, 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 the medicine. All right. So let's see what our survey respondents said. What I would say is, uh, first of all, there's a general always, you know, agreement between the cardiologists and nephrologists with perhaps nephrologists thinking more about, about diets. 
but overall they are they are they are um very similar in their responses so i guess that the, the, there's a major split between continue uh anti-hyperkalemic therapies to continue the binders um and i would not intervene further at this time and i guess not intervening further is continuing so i would almost argue that you know you could combine those two and then uh, others would consider reducing the anti the anti-hyperkalemic therapy so consider reducing the the binders and i, I could understand that that you know potassium is normal there's always the temptation to maybe reduce um the the, the dose of binders certainly maybe if they were on a, a large dose of of binder you could think about maybe reducing it and accepting you know a, a potassium level slightly higher but i think the overall message here is if it ain't broke don't fix it if the potassium level is fine i would continue it all so over to you so now we've got um raymond so um his potassium level is 5.1 from 4.5 at the last check um his his RASI doses were reduced when managing his hyperkalemia and so remembering backwards that he's got um half-ref dyslipidemia he's on uh, a statin an ACE inhibitor uh beta blocker SGLT2 an MRA and pterolar over to you what would you do yeah, so his doses of RASI therapy uh, were reduced while managing the hyperkalemia. Um, while on pterimer, I might try to uptitrate some of the RASI therapy if the blood pressure um, allowed me to do so, because we know that achieving target doses is really um, important still. Uh, although the mantra is low doses of all four foundational therapies, we may uh, need to uptitrate here. And furthermore, there is, a, you know, an opportunity here to switch from lisinopril to secubitril valsartan, which is associated with less hyperkalemia, which then may allow me to further uptitrate the spironolactone too. So I think we have lots of options here. And if we look at what the survey respondents said, the nephrologists said they would gradually increase the doses of RASI therapy. And some of the cardiologists said that as well, um, almost 50% of cardiologists. So I think that that sort of aligns with my approach um, and, and it really gives you the, you know, more security and safety in doing so. So the question is, Kieran, how, like, what do you do with this hyperkalemic therapy that you have on board? You know, one patient had SZC on board, the other patient, we used uh, pterimer for a novel potassium binder to facilitate uptitration of a RASI therapy. Um, what considerations are there in terms of the long-term management here? So what what you would be concerned about is if you stop the potassium binder, the potassium level rose, they got taken into the ER and they got, and someone told them, oh, you must stop your MRA or your uh, ARB. And then the patients are the left confused and worried that the, the medicines that we know are the cornerstone of their therapy are somehow worrying or, or scaring. As I've said before, it's, you know, trying to convince patients to go back on these medicines when they've been told to reduce them or stop them is always challenging. So, you know, if patients are on a, a, a you know, a potassium binder and are getting on well with it, then, you know, it would seem reasonable that we should continue it on, particularly as we know from uh, trial data that for both pterimer and SCC, that the potassium were well-controlled, stable out to one year. And so, and, and obviously beyond one year, you know, I can't imagine there's a biological plausibility why suddenly that would stop after a year. And so I think, you know, it's clear that both these agents have been demonstrated in, in long term, albeit only like to a year therapy, that we can continue on these agents, you know, 
uh, for as long as patients need, bearing in mind, particularly in, in the terms of CKD, is that as patients progress, they're more likely to develop hyperkalemia, they're more prone to develop hyperkalemia. And so, you know, we should be continuing all these therapies for as, as long as, as, as possible. Great. I agree. And, um, you know, some further clinical trial evidence that recently was uh, presented and published uh, was from the Diamond trial, which enrolled HEFREF patients who either had a history of hyperkalemia or were at risk of hyperkalemia. Um, and those patients were initiated on Petirimir in order to optimize the RASI therapy, including ACE, ARB, or ARNI, or um, also to initiate or optimize MRA. Uh, and so there was a run-in phase, and once randomized, either the pteromir was continued or it was withdrawn um, in that patient population um, that had been optimized. And what they found was that most patients, in fact, over 80% with HEFREF and RASI-related hyperkalemia could actually achieve their optimal doses of RASI, including an MRA, when they were treated with pteromir. And they were maintaining normal serum potassium levels. And the win ratio for hyperkalemia events accounting for mortality and morbidity um, and the overall RASIU score was significantly higher with pteromer treatment. So we were really seeing that these novel potassium binders were enabling optimization of guideline-directed medical therapy. And there's a couple more in the pipeline that I should allude to. There's the Realize K that's going to be looking at a similar HEFREF patient population in the management of high potassium in those patients um, and seeing if we can optimize RASI therapy, including MRA. So that is enrolling patients right now. And then the stabilized CKD patient population is going to be looking at SZC in the CKD population. So two SZC trials coming uh, up in the near future to give us more evidence base to, to discuss. So why don't we go back to the Delphi consensus recommendations. We tackle some of these in module one and two. These are the last two statements from the Delphi consensus recommendation. Um, closer cross-specialty collaboration would help optimize outcomes for individuals with cardiorenal disease. Clinical teams should be encouraged and supported to identify suitable methods to achieve this within their care setting. And the second or the very last statement to cover is consistent treatment approach should be the goal of new and updated guidelines that support people with cardiorenal disease and cross subspecialty support should be sought for these to ensure aligned clinical practice. And um, Kieran, what are your thoughts on these? And we have some survey data uh, with our respondents as well. I think these are, you know, no-brainers that they we need to work more closely together, uh, and you know we need to uh, apply evidence-based medicine for our patients. So you know I, I couldn't agree more, and I'm glad that our survey uh, equally um, agrees, so that there's very little difference between the cardiologists and nephrologists, and the vast, vast majority of of uh, the respondents, more than eighty percent or ninety percent, either agree or strongly agree with those statements. So I think we can definitely we can definitely say that we're all in alignment with and those important um, uh, and statements. So to conclude in this um, third module, what we've learned is that potassium binders can allow us to optimize our patients to get them on evidence-based therapy, that these agents are safe and effective in the long term with evidence out to one year. And you know, for us, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if their potassium level is well controlled, we should be keeping going 
um, with our potassium binders. And then finally, um, our, 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 Den uh, our Delphi consensus document really as a call to action to work, break down our silos, work across uh, disciplines to really apply evidence-based medicine to improve the outcome for these multi-morbid patients. Well, thank you so much for joining us on these modules for hyperkalemia. Kieran, it's been a pleasure um, participating in this cross-specialty collaboration for this discussion. Great. I hope everyone finds it useful and a cross-speciality, cross-continental uh, discussion. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.